Eight great smarts. Discover and nurture your child's intelligences. How Am I Smart? A Parent's Guide to Multiple Intelligences by Kathy Koch. Overview. Koch gives eight different types of intelligences all people and children have and how parents, teachers, and ourselves can encourage growth in the one or two we excel at and grow in the one we claim we just aren't smart in. Koch gives eight different types of intelligences all people and children have and how parents, teachers, and ourselves can encourage growth in one or two we excel at and grow in the ones we claim we just aren't smart in. While that may sound familiar if you read her later book, there's a section in this book that actually adds a good benefit and helps that what was not in the eight great smarts one. Review. This will reflect many points I've reviewed from the first book of Koch's that I read later in the later published Eight Great Smarts, Discover the Nature of Your Child's Intelligences. Many of the same stories and structures that are here are here. However, what this book includes is a couple of extra sections that I think would have been good to include in the later published book. Those sections include a grid system to put family members in the household, as well as more how to encourage a child in the specific types of smart. So if I had read this book first instead of the eight grade smarts, I felt like I would have lost something in the newer book. There are two main takeaway benefits in this book offers. The first is that you get thinking about different types of learning styles your child or children might display. Roadblocks you may be facing in homeschooling might rise up because of this. The second is that it offers different ways to direct your children who might be struggling in an area with different encouragements or ways of addressing issues without your child shutting down and hanging his or her hat on I don't get it. I'm never going to get it. I'm just not smart. The eight types of smart styles that the author talks about here are word and logic smart, which tends to be your typical idea when it comes to thinking someone is smart. There's also picture, music, body, nature, people, and self-smart. There's a citation from a doctor who coined these models of learning, but you're not going to find scientific studies here to bolster these claims. Koch is drawing on her experience presenting the ideas to a number of people. So if you're looking for more research to convince you of these modes, you're going to have to dive into a different source. I have to admit that there were some modes that made me think more that one area or another might be more how in, in how a child acts out in a learning situation that, than in how a child might learn. Yet, this does not take away from some solid information techniques. Also, if your child is acting out in learning situations in those ways, and it's not a learning style per se, it's not like the chapter or two won't be helpful. For each of the eight smart types, Coke follows a similar format, such as your child might be thinking, how that type of smart style expresses itself, how to communicate with your child to bolster that learning style, some pitfalls you might encounter, career paths to focus possibilities, and ways to honor God with that learning style. This is where I believe the book really shines. I read about a study that girls who express, I'm not good at math, and are told most girls aren't good at math, tend to shut themselves off drastically from learning math in a beneficial way. This is obviously a travesty, and this book offers a different ways to communicate to your child to not take the shutdown path for any number of subjects. In fact, it would have been beneficial to include more ways to encourage and reinforce both strengths, smarts, and also weaknesses subjects. The author talks about holding public speaking events where communicating to parents and children reveals a lot of good information to the children. A few negative aspects to this book are citations of a defunct website, which a checklist to help identify your child's smart style. The checklist seems to be important, and the author admits that children usually have a main smart style and a secondary or more styles. Putting this checklist in the book would not have added to much uh, to the length, but it also would avoid this type of missing link from occurring. 
The book wouldn't also have benefited from uh, how to talk to kids differently when you run into problems and if those conversations would be different depending on the age of the child, like elementary age or high school age. It seems also like this book is more geared towards homeschoolers rather than government school educated, but there is some coverage of it from a government education side of things. Also, maybe the point of how these styles can be observed, focused, and corrected works best in a homeschool setting, and hey, I won't be complaining there. The book might seem straightforward, and the main thrust of the styles can be gleaned from those titles of them. What the book excels at are those alternative ways to speak to kids who just aren't getting it, or who are learning differently than their friends. It also allows for expanding areas of learning left uncovered by many, including economics, different science focuses, and revisionist history. It's invaluable for those hiccups or roadblocks and doesn't let your child or parent hang their hat on the shutdown point of, oh, well, you'll just never get it. Final grade, There Will Be Time by Paul Anderson. Overview. Jack Havoc has been able to time travel at will ever since he was, well, born. The only friend he seems to have allowed for during his own time has been his doctor. The doctor gives an account of Jack's travels to the past and how other time travels from the past and future, but like the past past, which have some in the future, but there are also some real future people who are present, but then go to the past to go to the future to maybe hopefully stop a nuclear war, but some do stop it, maybe don't. Time travel. It's fantastic. Review. Jack Havoc has a genetic mutation that allows him to travel through time and finds out that an apocalypse will occur to the human race unless he does something about it. He meets up with other mutated people. He finds out uh, the leader is a racist who wants to uh, call people in the second age of man. What can Jack do? And is it worth doing anything? What a jumbled mess of the story this was. With time travel, the reader is either at a fixed point in time hearing about the tale or you follow the traveler on his journey. With the fixed point, which the story is, there's bound to be a lot of jumping around because, well, that's just what it feels like from your stationary point. The jumping around here is in Paul Anderson coming into paragraphs with about two previous ones missing. Plot points are picked up and then dropped. Jack goes to the date of its crucifixion to meet other time travelers so as to prevent the end of the world. No one bothers to look upon the scene of the most famous event in history, which would have been really interesting perspective to show the otherness of time travelers. But the reason for meeting up is really dropped. A change to the white ruler in the second age of man is brought about, but the salvation from the apocalypse isn't even discussed again. There is some great understanding of Anderson to not just drop his time travel characters into the midst of the date where the traveler has to arrive, though. He understands how much information gathering would have to be accomplished, how slow it would take to amass any wealth and influence. However, the time length to carry this out is brushed over too quickly and it skips around from needing to find a way to carry out the big plan to I like this family to I've fallen in love. Again, with time travel aspects of the story, one might think it was done on purpose, but that seems to be an excuse one would give for poor story structure. The story is an attempt to be told from a meeting Jack has with his childhood doctor, who is the only normal person he knows uh, that he's a time traveler. This is really an interesting point of view to take. However, it is quickly dropped just to follow Jack's perspective with a few asides to bring the doctor back into focus. This is like a found footage film that forgets it needs to have the perspective of found footage to maintain the storytelling element it started off with. The timing of everything is also way off. I know a book about time travel can hand wave this away, 
but the entirety of the book from Jack's perspective still feels like a lifetime, but it only shows his was a period of about 30 years under his belt. The amount of time Jack takes to fall in love is way too quick and without connection is done to only provide a dramatic point to advance the plot for its sake. The emotion is tread on without the buildup to pay it off in the end. The final 20 page of this book feels like the final act of a book. It's so rushed. The hop, skip, and jump around you expect from a time of trouble book is obtained from only the clunky writing of Anderson. Character development is non-existent. Why do characters that supposedly care about Byzantine rulers and the end of the world not care about the crucifixion? Why is there any attempt to care about the apocalypse when there's uh, they're so rare to no connection with anyone in the world due to their mutated powers? The big question of God, life, time that the book brings up are only shrugged off without satisfaction while anything the characters care about suddenly become the only things worth knowing. Most of the connecting pieces to the story are missing. One would have to go back in time and add them in. Final grade, D. Reading with Purpose by Nancy Wilson. Overview. Nancy Wilson's message to the Christian is that the Christian doesn't just read just to check off a box on a list. The Christian reads to share the nature and characteristic of God, who is also a storyteller. The things a Christian reads aren't thought of in a vacuum of space between one's ears, but should be thought about with and through the Christian worldview. Review. As a Christian, I am beholden by the desire and conviction to see all things through the lens of the Christian worldview. Literature is one of those important things where an internal and external look will not only benefit to glean the most of a book, but also see parts are true or not. It is not to say that unbelievers cannot write good books. Part of looking at the internal critique is whether the author sits well in his or her viewpoint and see how far it takes them. When they run out of road, so to speak, is where the external critique comes into play. All that to say that this book might be of some help in reminding one how to get the most out of a book they come in contact with. A child storybook, a historical biography, a science fiction space opera, or a medical drama, all are written out via a worldview and then taken in via a possible opposing worldview. Wilson does a good job showing the different epochs of time in general. What falters is not adding to the length to go into more detail about those periods and how they're characterized by books that were popular and not just knowing the periods of history and pointing to the books that show those worldviews in action. There is a section at the beginning of talking about looking at what a story or a book says about God, man, life, etc., and seeing if it's true. Sometime should have been taken to show in what ways those various stages in history have shown some true as a way to point to the common Mago Dei shared that these periods will show. There is also some commentary about poor writing in regards to books like Left Behind. Sure, call for the theology to be uh, in disagreement with the authors. However, the calling of writing as being poor needed to show some proof. This part early in the book treads too much on the common ground probably shared by most of the readers, but causing one to ask, and not just with this collection of books, well, where does poor writing come into play, and where does bad theology, anthropology, biology, ethics start? The trade-off of bre brevity for further help is felt. However, as a first exposure piece to literature critique from a worldview perspective, and the importance of parents, educators, Christians to do their due diligence to it does offer 
a good first stepping stone. Final grade, C. Dan the Destructor, Barbarians of the Storm, Book 1 by Rob Rhymes. Overview. Dan gets sucked through a portal to another world of sword and sandal. Muscly guys punching monsters and evil wizards trying to take over the world, but then launches into a monster truck with rocket launchers. It's all quite silly, as it's supposed to be. This book is a fish-out-of-water story where our hero shows up from time and place to a new time and the tone is established when we are introduced to him by his first words of an expletive. So the elements of humor will abound here. The good things with the fish out of water stories is that the main character can be the foil for the audience. We learn that uh, what he learns and exposition dumps make sense and follow the story, which also helps the reader. Rhymes uh, treads on some sword and sorcery fantasy tropes to move the story and add some technology to the mix. And when I say story moves, it moves quickly. There aren't histories given of forests and rulers. Fight scenes and conversations take time to get the message across and no more. And then we're moving again. We're moving. So if your qualm with fantasy is the slower pace than the book, then this book doesn't fall into all of that. The fish out of water story can also get lost in the shock and the this isn't real refusal of the main character to continue. Again, moving the story quickly is the motivator and it doesn't happen here. Our main character is fine enough. He is just an average Joe, soft, pudgy American who is working a nine-to-five job. The one bit we find out later about him that will help him labor in the story is that he was in the military at one time. I would have liked this tidbit to be dropped a little sooner and earlier in the story, as when it's revealed, it seems more of a hand wave explanation, something built into the character. Dan is almost a sidekick to his friend Fenric. Fenric is the fun Conan-like hero character who the story should be about in a traditional sense. Rhymes makes the choice of giving Dan some special help to adapt him to this uh, new world better. One is to give Dan the ability to understand everyone in English by the good old classic, a wizard did it, Simpsons explanation. The other help might be an issue for some, as it seems maybe a bit too easy. This other help is almost rendered moot by a revelation and gift of assistance given by other characters to Dan. And here's where I have my biggest issue with the book. The humorous tone of the book is the author's choice to lean into. I just would have liked it to lean into it more. Treading on the fantasy motifs and putting a current day average Joe allows for a lot of comedy, especially with the inclusion of later revealed technology. And there is some of this. It's just that Dan is given almost too much and soon the story is over. Of course, this book is a series. What fantasy book is not part of a series these days, but I like a book, especially the first book, to stand alone well on its own. Dan is critical of the bad guy's plan in that it sounds like a cheesy bad guy plan. That's great, but the story just kind of brushes over that with the line and continues on. But there are some great, epic, totally rad, excellent tubular moments, and then the story ends in the middle of a quest. Some revelation occurs, but there's just an epic high five, let's do this scene, as the heroes go into the next scene, which is the next book. There's an end to the story that's a bit confusing as to why it's added. It seems like a disconnected story to the main plot, and the tone uh, is is changed to a serious fantasy one. It seems like the character shares one quality that Dan also gets, but a change in subtlety is not expected, and the quick-moving humorous main story. Overall, the story is well-written, and you can tell that the author has a flair for the 80s vibe with the humor and tone of the story. It would have been better to lean into that a bit more. 
The story moves very quickly, so a lot of the fantasy tropes are used for the benefit of the story while not needing the long, drawn-out world-building or endless walking scenes. I would maybe pick up the next book in the series, but this review is just looking at the standalone book. Final grade, C+. The Shadow of the Torturer, The Book of the New Sun, number one, by Gene Wolfe. Overview. No matter what summary or review I give this, the fans of this book will say it's wrong. Oh, well. Severian is trained as a torturer for the kingdom. He's happy to learn his trade until one day he meets a woman and he does the one thing you're not supposed to do as a torturer, show mercy. Now he's on the run in a world that is far bigger than you realized, and that's it. Nothing else. Okay, uh, maybe the far, far future is where we reside in, and there are androids and magic uh, that might be for higher levels of tech instead that aren't really magic. And the whole book is from Severian's perspective as the future rule of the world, but maybe not. And it's all might be Gene Wolfe's meta-narrative, although he claims to have received the story from the future in some sort of channeled fever dream. But man, I love sci-fi. Review. I've been getting back into reading more sci-fi these days and really enjoying it. I've heard a lot about the book of the New Sun series, and what I heard was always, it's one of the best sci-fi series of all time that's really sci-fi fans know about. And then, don't ask me anymore until you read the book. So the fans care about the reading experience, and that says a lot. So my review will follow that similar pattern of no spoilers, but a few tidbits of help that might be of help to you in deciding to read it or in your reading. The story is told from a first person's perspective from our main character, Severian. He is part of a guild of torturers, him in training, who are tasked not with the extraction of information, but just carrying out the torture and executions in this world. Wolf also has this higher meta-narrative concept from him that the autobiography of Severian is given to him through some sort of time travel means. I don't know. Uh, While not actually central to the story, this helps further build the lore of the book, though. Just a straightforward read in the book makes one believe that this is a typical fantasy setting. Even more, even most of the book artwork that you see has that old world feel to it. However, the book takes place in the far, far into the future, where it does seem that the adage that almost is never true is true here. Technology looks like magic from some perspectives. So here's your hint, dear reader, to look for things that seem like they are out of place in a fantasy story are supposed to be because... You're actually in a sci-fi story, so there may be elements of aliens and robots and clones, maybe some sort of sci-fi elements here and there. Another interesting concept that I haven't had much experience with is the possibility of Severian being an unreliable narrator. After watching some video discussions on just this first book, I'm not sure if Wolf is writing Severian as unreliable or just adding in aspects that we, ourselves, use in everyday talk. I have a perfect memory of this incident, and then later you say you don't remember this one thing that happened. It's not exactly a necessarily a lie-revealed trope here. However, this is only the first book. Severian is telling the story from his position as leader of this world, and that's another element I missed until I saw it come up again in the book later. As for the story, the plot is there, and it's interesting, but it's the way Wolf unfolds the world that you're seeing and experiencing through Severian. Not everything is explained to you because Severian doesn't have your context to explain why this is the picture or this structure is the way that it is because of a Severian-limited experience based on his position as this torturer and also uh, Severian uh, to him those items aren't of note in his world because they've been there and are just there 
Wolf does a great job of crafting the story as he does have two, almost three different layers to the story. I get why hard sci-fi folks like this because to get a lot out of it, you need to put in the effort of paying attention and asking the questions of you to what you're actually reading. I gather rereaders of this book are common for fans and multiple reads still reveal new questions or observations. This story stuck with me after finishing it almost a week ago now. That's usually how I know there's something good that's a slow burn in there to stay in my mind. Just now, getting into a bigger world sci-fi than I have before, I'm kind of surprised I haven't heard about this before. Whether this is a postmodern sci-fi or hard sci-fi or fantasy with a veneer of sci-fi is up for discussion, but the story is just plain good. I will continue the series and believe I'll go on enjoying it. Final grade? Hey. The Green Ember series by S.D. Smith. Heather and Pickett are just your ordinary rabbits who are playing in the field until one day their father starts to tell them about a king struck down, but whose Camelot prophecy can come about. Before they learn more, their house is attacked. Now they must run with some someone who's claiming to be their uncle they have never met and his friend. They must escape the wolves and the hawks and see if they can join the fight for the rise of the new kingdom and peace for rabbit kind. Review. I will get thrown out of the homeschooling community for this review. I, too, joined the sacrilege of the small group of Christian homeschool parents that was very disappointed with this book. I do have to say that my seven-year-old enjoyed it and said she would continue the series, and I'm not opposed to having her do that. There isn't anything vulgar or cruel or any other red flag that comes with modern-day literature here. I also did appreciate that she did say that she enjoyed The Hobbit more, which we finished together before this book. She wants to continue the Lord of the Rings series next. I'm uh, obviously raising them right. What drove me to really not liking this book is the pacing and the prose. In there is the setting and the story for a good series. While I can see parallels of wanting it to be like Lord of the Rings meets Watership Down, but it's just not using a story that happens to involve anthropomorphized rabbits and wolves and etc. to this light fantasy story. The opening and the ending are also strong for the story, with the ending lifting up my crestfallen take a bit. Let me start with the pacing of the book first, as I think if this was made 200 or less pages, it would be a bit more to stomach. The book has a lot of running. The first third of the story is almost a number of the main characters running, and too much so. After they are done running, they stop, and they run some more. The arc of this park of the story doesn't allow for the tension to release and everything is hurried too much. I get they are rabbits and so running is a thing for them. However, the author makes it a point of having the characters talk about how they're almost out of energy, but then there are three more running scenes. After that, almost two thirds of the book moves us to a single location and a dead stop of getting to know the space where the revelations and plot spread out quite a bit to the crawling pace. Where I thought this book was going to run me right out of the pages at the beginning and not let any release from the tension, it does just the opposite of that in the middle, and that's where it was a chore to get through. The second big issue I had with the book is the plot and motivation. Our main character learn about this king, King Jupiter, only slightly and are completely enamored and worshipping of him. They dream about him, cry over him, and long for him but they are barely told anything, and we're not even sure the initial tale is about a real king. There is no real description of what made him great, or anything of real inspiration to drive the characters until a full telling of the legend almost two-thirds of the way into the book. 
what motivation they should have had was on the missing family, which really takes a backseat as a, any sort of understandable driving factor. The two main characters are pretty annoying too. I understand that they're young and this type of character trait would be a normal characteristic. However, the author uses it as motivation for both and it's not clear why they take the position they do. Heather is an allegedly amazing storyteller, but she's too scared to, to, to commit to it. Why? No clue. She is also always insightful and pretty much correct on all things except when the story calls on her not to be for the sake of the plot reveal. Pickett is really turned off uh, to another main character, and he feels like he failed. He recognizes he does, doesn't have any real reason to feel the way he does, but he just commits to it. The author uses this as a character arc for him, but it doesn't really endear him to the reader, and it doesn't really make sense for the arc he wants to be on. There is an arc in him, and you could have had it but uh, by growing up quickly due to war and loss, but mostly it's about him overcoming whininess, and barely so. Characters around them also move at a snail's pace. The revelation, but for no real reason except for this not-so-secret initiation ritual, yet uh, characters still give them a grand tour and free reign around this super-secret compound to get to the ritual that takes forever from their first arrival. A loss of any sense of time gripped me in this book. Days, months, minor characters only treat them worse after the main character realized the bigger story. And their reaction is those revelations are pretty over the top for anyone their age and removal from this world. For example, they are concerned about a possibility of loss of honor and denying betrayal are met with a literal outcry. Do they have any clue what honor is or why it matters in this family context? That's really unclear. The writing of it is all very clunky and disjointed. That mixed with the pacing of it makes it a real chore to keep going. There are a few plot points and characters that go towards there being a good story in there. However, the too fast and then too slow pacing, the poor character development works against it. I'm sure I'll be tied to a stake and poked with little swords while listening to the next one as punishment, but this just wasn't a well-written book. Final grade, D. On Getting Out of Bed, The Burden and Gift of Living by Alan Noble. Review. Alan Noble doesn't give a self-help five steps to getting over depression, nor does he give the just turn it over to Christ empty claim on dealing with mental illness. Noble doesn't put all hopes into medicine, nor does he claim the Christian is to never touch the stuff. This balanced book is a helpful book for Christians on how one experiences and deals with sorrow, despair, anxiety, and mental illness. There's no easy answers, and there are no quick steps to just get over it. Review. Wow. I was really impressed with this book, and Noble's taking on these sensitive issues. This is not a self-help book, nor is it a let go and let God book. It's not a name it and claim it, nor is it a put on sackcloth and ashes, it's your fault book. What this book is, is a needed reminder that life is hard. We can go through hard times and live in hard ways, but God is God who has made promises we can trust, and one of those promises is that he loves his children. This is a book about looking at depression, mental illness, panic attacks, or just feeling down through that lens and taking it with the balance Noble gives. I was so impressed with the balance here. Noble stands on the line of truth and understanding. He will caution against overdiagnosis, but then caution against turning a blind eye to issues that one needs to find help. 
He tells painful truths like one needs to avoid reveling in the dour nature for the attention of others while also being lovingly kind to people who stay silent to not burden people who need to seek out help from others. The overall arc is that sometimes just doing one little thing, like getting out of bed, is a goal. And then you find your next thing, the next right thing to do. Noble hangs the truth on a couple of different truths. One, being made in the image of God shows our life as precious. And two, God has made promises we should believe in, and one of the ways we can believe in them is to show by actively doing so. And three, we can biblically love ourselves, not in the worldly, superficial way, but in the 1 Corinthians 13 way. This is a book that I finished and ordered a physical copy to mark out and lend out to others. I would call this book one of my reverse highlight books in that I uh, would have made it through quicker if I highlighted what I didn't want to pay attention to on a quick glance through. Noble's care and love for those struggling is evident, and not just as someone who puts the forward of the line, I am one of you too, but in the God is God who keeps his promises and the ultimate goal is for us to keep on living for his glory. I highly recommend this book. I ordered his other two as well because of this. Final grade, A+. Apologetics, A Justification of Christian Belief by John Frame. Overview. Theologian John Frame gives his take on proper Christian apologetics. He looks at topics such as proof, defense, offense, reason, evidence, biblical authority, the problem of evil, and the lordship of Christ. You know, if only there was some sort of podcast that you could go through this book that would be really helpful to understand this one. Oh, well. Review. This book was fully discussed on Cave of the Cross Apologetics. John Frame has been well-known theologian and apologist for some time. While he's known to have written whole systematic theologies and uh, apologetic tomes, this updated book is a good introductory book on presuppositionalism, reformed apologetics for a college-level discussion. What Frame does is lay out the role of apologetics in the life of the Christian and also the impact it should have. He covers the three aspects of reality a good uh, apologetic should cover, like metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. How things are, how we know things, and what should we do with those. Within each of these are breakout discussions on things like the necessity of the Trinity, the need to ground knowledge in a consistent means, and always a constant need to be true to what you claim, what your claims actually are. Probably one of the most controversial topics Frame takes on is the critique of Cornelius Van Til's transcendental argument. There are areas of disagreement with Frame here, but it does not come from the point of view more Van Til critics have, which is to not really try to understand what Van Til is trying to say. Frame is a fan of Van Til and subscribes to a lot of what he puts forth. As a tag discussion point, this is a good one to go over. Other points throughout this book is the necessity of the gospel in one's apologetics and in the discussion of the problem of evil. Frame wants to do what he does throughout the book, which is to encourage Christians to be Christians in their apologetic and discussions. This is a highlight of Frame's writing in that he speaks as a Christian, assumes as a Christian, and lays out arguments consistent with what he actually believes. I would say that the one negative aspect of this book is the flow of the topic doesn't always stick with what came before, and there are parts of the book that seem kind of copy and pasted in the works from previous writings. This is admitted to in parts, so it's not as if Frame is hiding this fact. 
Also, these topics do require a lot of discussion points to really hit it uh, solidly. And even for a 350-plus page book, there are sections that are too short for the discussion to be fully fleshed out. If you're looking to get in the frame, but may be intimidated by some of this large writings, or you're looking to set up a reading in presuppositionalism from an introductory level or a critique uh, portion from a, another presuppositionalist, this would be a good book to do that. Final grade, B+. Slewfoot, A Tale of Bewitchery by Brahm. Overview. Set in colonial New England, someone who only watched shows on the Puritans writes a story where the entity of Slewfoot is released upon the world again. And of course, there's a woman at the center of it all. But is Slewfoot demon or God? Demon. He's a demon. The author doesn't want him to be, but he's a demon. Review. What if the Vavitch was written very straightforwardly with no surprises? It'd still be better than this turned out to be. By very straightforward, I mean the story holds very little tension. And after the meeting of the main character with the other main character, you know how the story is going to play out. Setting the story in the 7th century New England with the Puritans is easy fodder. It's no surprise that stereotypical Puritans would be used, ahistorically, when it came to the ideas of personal relationships, public decorum, and sex. There's a scene where a married couple engages in sex, and the man apologizes because it's not appropriate. The Puritans had a lot of great things to say about sex in the confines of marriage, and this, would, this wouldn't be the case at all. The story also treads on the very publicized, but in actuality, low number of witch trials that occurred in Salem. This shows the story writer writing cannot build drama at all because the witch trials grew out of the drama and hysteria and frenzied stories. Here, you just have to say, those crazy Christians be burning down to witches all the time, and you've got your realism. But historical realism is not where I'm going to hang my hat on for this review. I'll hang my hat on the fact that the story doesn't even believe in its own worldview. Without getting too much into spoilers, this is a story of revenge, and yet the first human killed is brushed off by the main character because, well, he just didn't know. Yet revenge has taken on everyone else who deserved it. In a world where the characters are alleged to uh, attribute all bad and shortcuts to the devil, all the events in the story match exactly what the devil would do and believe. The story could have taken a great turn if this realization turned out to be the real case, but this is so straightforward storytelling that it could never be that cool. The enactment of revenge and is one done into the extreme and overtaking the main character to physical changes occurring. Again, without spoilers, the realization that the main character comes through about the reasons for Slewfoot and the others is some uh, pantheistic revelation, even though the exclusivity of many of the other gods are primarily concept here, and it's just brushed over. Here, again, we see the desire, a belief in the noble savage to be the thing to set on the pedestal. The revelation of Slewfoot just happens uh, even though there seems to be other bad gods that speak against to the Pantheon message. I don't know. All these plot elements point to the Puritans being correct. A demon is killing innocent people and witchcraft is making it stronger and is corrupting individuals in society. That's not the point that the author was going for, but that's the point he came across with. With all these things and the unimaginative storytelling, there's no need to compare this to the witch or read something you've seen in Carrie. Final grade, D. The Earth Abides by George R. Stewart. Overview. The end of the world has happened, and our heroes slept through it after getting bit by a snake. He's one of the few people left in the world. From the quiet, he attempts to rebuild the world again, but is that 
his role, and what's best for the Earth. Review. Brian Aldiss coined the term cozy catastrophe about John Wyndham's work, it being an end-of-the-world event where the character doesn't suffer enough or there's not always impending doom right at your door. In Earth Abides, the main character, Ish, is bedridden throughout the entire apocalypse. Then we follow him when he's clear-headed. No zombies, no aliens, no evil government stooges, just the Earth and him. Ish isn't a scientist or a doctor or a superhuman soldier. He's just a slightly more intelligent person who understands the present and importance the future holds. Along the way, he picks up a few group of survivors. The dynamic of the group is something that is interesting as we see a small society form. Within this, Ish becomes a de facto leader and the idealist. But an idealist who has, really, who has reality smack into him several times, especially when it concerns other people. While you don't get a semblance of others' actions and reasons, we are constantly following Ish in his internal dialogue. Society is gone, and all that remains are the remains. But now, children come into a mix. Society is still in struggle within their group. Ish wants to build the children to take over and remember the times before and achieve order once again. But what does order in society look like when you only have less than a dozen people who existed in the before times? There are some amazing juxtapositions in this book as well. Ish takes a wife, Emma, names that have origins both for Ish, Adam, and Emma, Eve. We see the story starts out with Ish, Adam, being bitten by a snake, and then he's thrust into the world of disorder, but also the earth continues. Within this, there is a small discussion of religion, as Ish is not religious, and views it as a distraction from the unity needed among the group and focus on survival tasks. Then, to double back, mythology springs up on other things that, uh, for Ish, are commonplace, but for the children, who only know the world after the Great Disaster, become totems and exalted titles. There's no big shout-outs in this book. There's no stopping the Mad Bomber or Brigand. It's a calm book where the tensions and drama are beautifully done. The dealing with an outsider stranger to the group and the impact of the actions taken is such a high point. But there are little movements that are big deals. And there and there are big deals where you think the story will focus on, but it settles into a more somber and carefree tone. It's amazing. I almost come to think of apocalypse stories truly bringing questions of the purpose of life and humanity front and center. And this is one that has done it the most by not focusing on the disaster, but on life and humanity. This would be an amazing book for a group discussion or reading group. I was tempted not to finish it as I saw the end coming and I didn't want it to end. A sure sign of a good book. A definite recommendation. Don't let it sit on your shelf. But if you do, the earth abides. Final grade, A+. We are Legion. We are Bob. Bobbyverse, number one by Dennis E. Taylor. Overview. A rich and nerdy tech guy buys an insurance policy that says if he were to die and it were possible to save him, his consciousness will be uploaded in digital format. Good thing he won't ever have to use it. And he's dead. Upon waking up in the future, he's one of the few AI human constructs that hasn't gone psycho or suicidal. He's tasked with trying to save humanity on an Earth on the brink of war again. But what limits are there for a personality that has access to futuristic nanoprinters that can replicate his personality as many times as he wants? Think of the power or the ability to have fun while taking on the personality of Homer Simpson. I love sci-fi. Review. This is exactly what great sci-fi is. Future tech, questioning the laws of physics, the human condition, and having an author who can wield it all in a good story with some great humor. 
I was really hooked into this book about mm, three chapters in, and the pacing of it is so well done. The contents could have been lost in cumbersome detail or following too many plot paths, but Taylor is a master of his craft. Yes, you could have AIs that mimic in all ways the deceased Bob question, his reality, and if he's human or not, but the tone in which those questions are asked and within the story revised uh, matches together perfectly. An AI personality, Bob, can copy himself, and while there are different pairs and paths, the story follows four main paths, and they are distinct enough with the different Bob personalities uh, that you kind of don't get lost in them. Also, when you have stories like this, you almost have one favorite or one you don't want to break away from because the story is just getting good. However, each Bob personality is close enough to the character you like, and the stories are equally interesting that I didn't find myself picking a favorite. This is a story I would give someone to just getting into sci-fi as an adult. This was really a great premise, great writing, and good humor. The choices made and the logic involved is believable, even within a sci-fi future setting. It was a good book uh, that I didn't uh, realize I was at the end of the book and immediately had to let the person who recommended to me that I enjoyed it uh, so much uh, that I picked up the others in the series and uh, looking forward to other writings by the author. I can't wait to start the next in the series. Final grade, A+. The Long Moonlight by Razorfist. Overview. Xerdes is a road master thief who does the job based on his own set of rules using a particular set of skills. Then she had to walk through the door. Now Xerdes is being pressured to join a band of master thieves who are looking for the final big score to end it all. Surely nothing can go wrong. And of course, don't call me Shirley. Review. Pulp noir in a world of magic with an anti-hero who has enhanced abilities that may be supernatural in nature? Sign me up. While not feeling exactly like the shadow, there are certain magical elements in this fantasy world that are reminiscent to it. The plot points holds to a Sam Spade-type pulp detective novel with an honorable thief in place of the detective. The femme fatale and the honorable official detective and underworld crime boss and stooges all show up. The story is part mystery, part heist, and part revenge with about four different plots focuses. While operating as a novella, the story does not seem short. I believe this helped by the use of the author's prose. While not being your typical detective noir, slightly over-the-top cadence, uh, there is the style that is intentional and unique. While some may see this as the author attempting to exhaust a thesaurus, most others would just call this entertaining. I quite enjoyed the author's use of the style and language choices. The choice of words isn't coming from someone thumbing through a college dictionary for any word. It's a deliberate and adds to the slightly over-the-top story with a fun entertainment style. Not everything fell into perfect explanation for me. There was a plot turn that I didn't quite get, which is almost most likely an error on my part. Some of the magic of this world wasn't explained enough. This also included possibility that some magical elements of the main character, Xerdes, uh, becomes shadow-like and a master of his craft. An interesting side character, Coggins, is a great addition to the story as almost the Commissioner Gordon-esque noble detective. Uh, however, he isn't quite the cat-and-mouse foil, nor does he make a serious impact on the story until about the last part of the story. For a bigger story or a bigger part in the next novella, this detective who works within the system would be a great character to follow, especially in a fantasy setting. Overall, the prose extends the life of the book, and the character provided a good small target to keep your focus on. The unique storytelling is a different type of setting, uh, adds to the uniqueness, even for those of us who aren't that big fans of fantasy. 
There is enough here to at least pique the interest of an indie supporter, and I would definitely check out another in the series, Continued or Expanded. Final grade, A-. A Change of Plans by Dennis E. Taylor. Overview. Earth is dying, and a crew of Ouroboros is set to get colonists out among the stars to give humanity the greatest chance of surviving. It only has a small window of time to make only a few trips. The first one should go off without a hitch. Enter the hitch. Review. A very short story that I was glad was free. I had an extra 30 minutes to pick this up. It was fine. It's so middle of the road as far as short stories go that this is all I can say about it. Final grade, C. Deeper, Real Change for Real Sinners by Dane Ortland. Overview. After salvation, the goal of the Christian is to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.18. But how does one grow? How does one go about being sanctified? That's what the, this book purports to help with. Review. I did not care for Ortland's last book, Gentle and Lonely. I was probably one of the only few that didn't. And with this one... Uh, he continues to have fine theology, but terrible execution, just like the last one. There really are some gems of points about the need to continue to hold the importance of justification as not just a one-time thing and dimension of pruning as opposed to suffering, a la James 1. Also, that Christianity cannot be piecemealed out to individual doctrines. However, my goodness, can you write a lot and say nothing Ortland's prose, again, is filled with platitudes, not just once or twice per point, but several times. There is a lot of Christianese in here. He also wrangles in those in church history, brings up three people, and has to provide you with stories to quote to the quotes he's mining, and not stories that add to what he's saying to make one point. Fluff writing occurs around good points, and the structure suffers for it. By the end of the book, you have gotten some good points, which there are absolutely are here, but it took a lot of cotton candy eating to get there. In the final pages, about page 172 to 173, he summarized the purpose of each chapter of the book, and even that is peppered with it. Chapter 4 is about uh, drinking down his undeserved love, or chapter 6, receiving the anguish of this life as a gentle hand of God to help us rather than to punish us. Again, the points are good, but you need a toothbrush to get out all the sugar. Deeper is the name of the book because one has to get about halfway through the book to really start to find the elements of the how to go deeper. The workbook is also essentially questions that are easy enough to ask yourself and could have been added to the book to make it one thing. Again, I tend to be the minority with Ortland's writing, but... This is a pass. Final grade. For We Are Many, Bob Verse, number two, by Dennis E. Taylor. Overview. Continuing the story of Bob in all his forms and all his adventures, we focus on still trying to save humanity despite its least best efforts to help. But there's a new civilization found that has one of the Bobs very interested. All is going fine as teetering on the brink of chaos when an old and all-consuming civilization sets its eyes on humanity and the rest of the universe. There's only one man to save them. Well, well, one former man who's AI now. Uh, well, actually, multiple AI former men. Well, multiple AI former men, that's really one man. Well, not one man because now they're all separate and with their own unique experiences and memories and actions. Again, I love sci-fi. Review. Set immediately after the first book ended, the second one holds all the charm and great sci-fi storytelling that the first had. The main characters 
characters are logical but don't get everything right. The stakes are higher as the story unfolds more. The humor and the emotions are maintained in line with the previous. This is how a sequel should be written. One of my favorite parts is that that Bob recognizes the need to maintain a type of physicality in order to keep a limit on his fully computer self, but in order to help physical beings, aliens, humans, etc., He needs to maintain some grounding and develop some limits to his programming and other also develops androids. If you're looking for a suggested series for a friend or family to start sci-fi, I really would pick this series. My understanding is that the series isn't finished yet, so that may give one pause. However, I think this is a great primer is the fun that the science fiction can be. Final grade, A. The Lord bless you and keep you. The promise of the gospel in the ironic blessings by Michael Glodo. Overview. The gospel of Christ is found throughout all scripture, and that includes in the ironic blessing of Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you. Number 6, 24 to 25. So what did that mean to the people at the time of Aaron and those after and at the time of Christ and the early church and to us at the church today? Review. I just did not have a good year, 2023, for modern era theology books. Once again, this book is solid when it comes to the theology. There was nothing heretical or heterodox or anything along those lines. There are some good coverage on the atonement and messianic fulfillments of Old Testament scripture. What caused the nosedive was the organization and prose. Glodo sets up his premise at the start, which is to show the importance of the ironic blessing and how it carried throughout the ultimate fulfillment of Jesus and his church. Check. Got it. When I got halfway through the book, I found myself lost as to the purpose of the book to the point where I thought I might have skipped over a massive amount of the book that kept tying it back to the purpose. I did not. Glodo seems to want to build off different key points like the importance of God's face or the name being on God's people, but he zooms in and out of that point to hit on other parts he wants to teach on. Chapter after chapter go on until I was a quarter of the way left, where I wasn't drawn back to the main point of the writing. Again, a lot of good and important theology here, but he loses focus and doesn't seem to want to go back to it as his touch point. He even, at times, goes back to various words in the blessing, but almost feels like a word study rather than making the point that it's the ironic blessing that's the origin source. I'll keep this book for citation into uh, points Glodo covers, but this is sadly a mess of prose. Final grade, D. Robopocalypse by Daniel H. Wilson. Overview. The robot uprising is finally here. The supreme AI known as Arcos only wants to help humanity out by attempting to destroy it because from the ashes, humanity will improve. Does Arcos have a point? Stories told from around the world of humanity's rebellion against the toasters. Review. Finding a great book must be what chasing a good high is like. I was good, but once it's done, you really like to find that same hit again. This is my feeling when it comes to apocalypse sci-fi and World War Z as my gold standard. I won't sing its praise here, but I am unable to be objective and not compare all apocalypses to it. This review also won't be a citation of the similarities and contrast to World War Z. It just is a big factor in my review. Robopocalypse is a first-person-ish perspective about the robot uprising against humanity, and the survivors are telling the tale to give an overview of the before, during, and after moments of WWR. This format was popularized by The Good War by Studs Treckle and World War II, and World War Z took inspiration from it. 
what this book does is that it gives a purpose for existing in the style and format that it is right off the bat, and it's in line with the story. Just great. The book does tend to follow about four to eight people throughout with several others added along the way. This doesn't cover stories from around the world, but really only focuses on America, Europe, and Japan, with the last two only offering a couple of side characters that advances the ending. This does allow for the diversification of stories and cultures, but doesn't really give a big feel for the different uh, areas responding to the apocalypse differently. The storyline is well done and interesting. However, there tends to be a loss of focus on just how big the apocalypse is. The military tech going AWOL is clear, but other than a focus on smart cars and a few helper bots running down people, uh, there isn't a lot of variety in the machine uprising. The horrors of the war are talked about, but the descriptions of changes humanity undergoes is a little bit slightly lacking. There is a lot of detail glanced over. In fact, most of the story coverage tends to focus on moments, both big and small, that drive humanity to reclaiming control and defeating the uprising. Other than the end of the story being upfront, it seems to downplay just how dire the situation of humanity is. Most characters tend to end with, and this event would be the catalyst that was important to humanity defeating the robots. Hope never really is in question here, which leads the reader to not experience the downs enough and relish the upwinds throughout the story. There are a couple of missing plot points, which include an explanation on the importance of government robot policy and how the robot overlord thought he could use a politician's daughter to really influence whatever it is. The facts of supplies and reprogramming robots to uh, serve in humanity's resistance tend to be underplayed and another brushed over concept but important parts in the total apocalypse. The end is also really missing a long overlook wrap up, including how life has changed, what steps humanity has taken to live again and prevent another uprising. And where are the other characters now? The characters that are followed are interesting and they have their arcs to play out. Even a free robot turns out to be brought into it later, but it could also easily be a reader's favorite and wanting more of him. Wilson's native American background plays a big part in the storytelling it is neither a good nor a bad thing, and in fact, I would have liked more explanation of what made the reservation folks such a good resistant point for humanity other than the author wanted to include his background into saving humanity. Eh, nothing wrong with that. While it may seem like I have a number of negative points or critique points, this is a familiar territory for me, and I know what I'm looking for in a well-rounded story with all these elements. However, I really, really enjoyed my reading of this, and we'll pick up whatever the next one in the series is about. Not going to be in my top 10 like World War Z, slow, dead walking into it, but it earned a place of from what I recommend along with World War Z very easily. Final grade, B+. Signs and Secrets of the Messiah, a fresh look at the miracles of Jesus by Jason Sobel. Overview. What did the miracles of Jesus mean to someone with a background in a background of Jesus, a, a Jewish context? Rabbi Jason Sobel gives his take as a messianic believer in providing some details and context that might be missed by modern-day Western readers. Review. Currently, I'm leaving aside any discussion on the author or his continuationist ideas. This review is about the book. While there is some good theology and history here, what Sobel attempts to do is tie a lot of sayings, allusions, and topologies from the Old Testament into the New Testament. The biggest issue that when Sobel is attempting to tie them together is he tends to just make assertions without actually providing proof that we should view the link or better yet, that the original authors, audiences, or speakers would be doing the linking. Discussion on the importance of Jesus doing his first miracle at a wedding is linked as important 
to the original created order, but how? Other than the assertion there, there's no direct link to the first miracle being at the wedding. Some of the worst attempts to link ideas is through cabal-like numerology and counting Hebrew words, which can be things. However, in things like his discussion of John 3, Sobel asserts Hebrew letters uh, numbering when the original context was in Greek. Where is the discussion that we should take the original languages, translate it into Hebrew, and then take the importance of the number scale into consideration? Is this what Jesus wants to highlight when he's talking in John 3? Is that what John's wanting to highlight? Anybody? There's also a focus on using Yeshua for Jesus and implementing Hebrew terminology throughout the book. This seems more like brand focusing than what's necessary. However, I will say there isn't anything outright heretical here. There's some good points to be made about faith and sanctification. Again, leaving out any discussion of continuations out of discussion, only focusing on the book. More focus could have been done of staying within the Old Testament to show the linking that Sobel is attempting to do. If you're looking for something along those lines, G.K. Beale's Handbook of the New Testament Use of the Old Testament, Exegesis and Interpretation, is a good introductory text into that. I wouldn't recommend this one. Final grade, D. Death Date by B.Y. Simpson. Overview. Nova James was not looking forward to the day where she would be given the date of her death as dictated by the government, but it was for the benefit of the world as the earth had been through war and limited resources. Then she accidentally found herself at the center of a plot of rebellion where she might hold the key to freeing the world from the tyranny of the government. Then she meets a rapscallion streetwise boy, and the two must flee into the outer wilds and search the rebel base who can help unlock the end of everyone's death date. Review. It's a world where our main character, Nova James, resides where the world has gotten so bad environmentally and people-wise that a new world order has risen up to mark people for an ending death date that will you get when you're 18 and bad behavior takes time away. A Hunger Games meets in time. Well, except you never really see anything that is described about this world. I'm usually the person who complains about too much world building and not enough plot. Here, I don't see any of the world other than the death dealer squads who seem to be immune to a death countdown. What does the world look like to get to the point where the entire world population allowed for this death day program to be implemented? No clue. How is bad behavior cataloged and accounted for, and how does this affect people's interactions out in public or even in private? There doesn't seem to be any change at all. Certain people are in open rebellion and hiding from hit squads. Parents can be awful to their children. There isn't a blight of false kindness or people breaking under the pressure of knowing exactly when they'll die. There seems to be some sort of enforcement at schools, but without being 18 yet, there aren't really any repercussions for acting out. In this world, people kind of just act the exact same as now. That is, until you get outside the main city, then it's a wasteland of destruction for some unknown reason. Our main character receives survival training from her grandfather, who is part of an elite, but doesn't really show off any of the skills until the very end of the story. She's rescued by the mysterious boy character who she's crushing on after being betrayed by another boy character who seems to be up to something. After falling into rebellion, meeting on accident, Nova is very loosely in control of what her goal is. After several hospital visits, which also seems weird in a world where death for a large portion of the world should be kind of welcomed, she needs to leave the city and find the rebellion. From there, stumbling upon revelations by happenstance seems to be the plot of Unfold Method. Our handsome rogue Alex seems to be angry with a dark backstory and tough, except, but he seems to 
mostly be the hero of the story. There is some slight romance with awkward looks and too close talking in a will-they-won't-they arc, but characters never really have an arc either. The people who they started off as is really who they finish as, and the revelation and how they get there just kind of happens. Alex and the grandfather are the biggest key players in the story, minus one boss battle, and being a key to cure the effects of the death day and disease. The world has no grounding in what it claims to be. The characters just exist. The YA typical love story with almost a love triangle is bland. The plot does move forward, however. The action is mostly chase scenes with a few short fights. Other people who have read it seem to like it. I won't be continuing this series. Final grade, D. Hydra's Wake by Daniel Jones. Overview. There's a blimp pilot, Rogue Whip, that's the character's name, that crashes his ship, and he's mistaken for a spy with the same name. But then he sees a giant Hydra, and he's surprised by it. But not really. He quickly rescues a fair maiden, but he doesn't take advantage of her, and we should all be grateful to him that he couldn't could control himself. Uh, the bad guys appear, and they aren't surprised by the giant Hydra until they are. Then aliens show up, I guess, and I, I, I don't know. Other stuff ha- happens, I guess. Review. There is zero explanation of what is going on in this book. I can't tell if people are on another planet or just a different part of this planet. Hydras seem to be known to exist, but no one has any clue what's going on with them. Then an alien AI shows up randomly. The main character has the same name and a stupid one at that, Rogue Whip, as the bad guys, uh, and the bad guys just can't figure this out. He goes from attempting not taking liberties with an injured unconscious woman, but he also tricks some of the bad guys by claiming he's a hallucination. Yeah, I was I was pretty much done with it at, at that point. The one good th- thing to say about this book is that it does have a pretty cool cover. Final grade, F. Roadkill by Dennis E. Taylor. Overview. Jack has been kicked out of MIT, and all he has going for him are his two friends and working with his father delivering bread. Can it get any worse? Wham! He just hit and killed a giant intelligent squirrel that turned out to be an alien. Jack finds the creature's ship that has a smarmy AI personality. The three friends work with the ship to stop a secret plan of aliens from taking over the Earth, but they can't let Jack's parents find out, or they might ground him, I guess, from not taking the spaceship out for a ride. Review. Having, at the time of this review, read half the Bobbyverse series by Taylor, I enjoyed his mix of science fiction and levity to bring joy into the genre. Sure, darkness and bleakness of the emptiness of space or alien invasion or corrupt governments, but I repeat myself, are enjoyed staples, but sometimes I want to have fun in my sci-fi. So what better way than to start off the story about a plot of a secret alien invasion scheme than our main character running over an invisible alien squirrel? Jack and his friends, Natalie and Patrick, end up teaming up with an alien ship AI, Sheldon, to uncover the secret alien plot in line to something akin to They Live. Taylor again uses the need to exposition dump as a scientific method thinking process by our bright trio group. This similar style of thinking, out of problems, hypothesis, experimentation, follow-up questions, analysis, and conclusion sometimes works and it sometimes fails. It moves the plot forward while having this information move with the story. And here the information learned is really good and plausible for alien species. There isn't groundbreaking revelations of alien life, but it follows a logical frame set that grounds the sci-fi. Here's where I believe the story falters in two categories. Taylor's dry and fun sarcastic tone from the Bobbyverse is enjoyable and endears the characters to the readers. With Sheldon as our AI character, he's just your typical stupid humans far 
too much of it without the moments of genuine humor or warm care that would endear him to the reader. He's helpful and intelligent, but when his humor is more annoying, even to the characters in the story, it's hard to believe that our characters would grow so close to Sheldon. The second issue is that the book is almost too short to leave enough time to figure everything out along with attempting to thwart an alien invasion and having both successes and failures along the way. For example, there is a conspiracy UFO nut who is brought up and he's kind of quickly discarded, never to be seen again. Then from the time of uncovering the movers behind the conspiracy to the end is really quick that the drama tends to get lost and the action moves a lot quicker. This front loads the book with our characters figuring things out at a slower rate than the rest of the story unfolding at the end very quickly. However, I would not say that I didn't enjoy this book because I did. I still like Taylor's writings and his normal slightly above intelligent characters who succeed and fail in their efforts to learn the new world around them and to react to the different plot points. It is also nice to know that you can have a book in this day and age be a one-shot novel rather than a 12-part expanded universe with two different threads and the author doesn't finish it or know how to. If you like Taylor's other writings, you will most likely like this. If this is where you want to start with Taylor's work, just start with the first Bobbyverse novel first. If you just want to check out the story because it's about an alien uh, plot to take over the world and discovered after accidentally having a way too close encounter with an alien and the hood of a truck, check it out. Final grade, B-. The Fear of Monte Croix by Brian Asher. Overview. Davian is tasked with solving a mystery from a group of vampires. This group slaughtered his people, and he's in disguise as one of them. If he's found out, he'll never figure out what happened to his father in former order. Oh, and death. Uh, he'll, he'll be dead, too. Review. Overall, this was a middle-of-the-road book for me. I tend to be someone who complains about world-building supplanting the story, but there needs to be enough. There is some, but there were a number of times where questions popped up that I didn't realize was part of the world. However, the storyline is there, but it really only gets going about halfway through the book. The vampire lore is established and well done. Magic Hoods was an interesting addition to the normal tropes. There is some action scenes, and luckily there are some only some minor descriptions of the specifics, as it's always so difficult to make epic fight scenes seem as epic while not feeling like anime battles. Overall, this is a detective story, the second half of the story. Uh, gets you going a lot more with the logical thinking and smart subversion to get more clues to the case. Yet, I felt like there weren't enough clues to help the reader get to the final conclusion with the main character, Damien. His befriending of Carneth doesn't really add much to the plot and allows for a number of times of exposition over food, drink, and table. Exposition has to be done, but we care about Watson as well as Sherlock. The second half of the book was quite enjoyable, and the vampire lore was well done. The story lacks a weight of repercussion other than solving the mystery whodunit. The world has rules and a history, it just needs to define them more quickly and fuller. Overall, I had a fun read to it. Final grade, C+. Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age by Rosaria Butterfield. Overview. Rosaria Butterfield uses her background and personal journey of faith in providing sound biblical answers to five challenging social norms in our current Western lives. Topics of homosexuality, feminism, transgenderism, spiritual but not religious, and modesty and are covered and done so through a biblical worldview to make sense of why we're seeing what we are seeing 
and what our response should be to it as Christians with the message of the gospel of hope and freedom. Review. What Butterfield does in this book is not only give the biggest issue with identity and the self-deception of sexuality today, 2023, but also keeps it gospel-focused, which is the cure. First of all, it has footnotes, so it's already riding high for me. Next, she defines most of her terms right off the bat. I had to remind myself that I already knew a lot of the top on the topic and wanted to read this for the intended audience. There were maybe a few words where I thought it would have been good to include, like gender in the first chapter. However, she did come to talk about the uh, Freudian influence in mixing up sex and gender, which is an important discussion point. The five lies she identifying she's identifying in her book are the following. Homosexuality is normal. Two, being a spiritual person is kinder than being a biblical Christian. Three, feminism is good for the world and the church. Four, transgenderism is normal. And five, modesty is outdated burden that uh, serves male dominance and holds women back. Each topic is molded to a personal story or concerns her personal journey to faith, which adds more than just looking at a collection of current event stories to shake your head at. For being at 300 pages, this book does a lot of work in a good amount of time. While this book does seem to at first be one for a Christian to be informed about the current day issues, this also appears to be targeted to those wanting to see the full Christian response to the topic at hand. While being spiritual and modesty seem to be topics that don't necessarily belong in the camp with the other three, Butterfield does a good job of laying out the through line that ties them all together. Butterfield is a skilled writer, then that shows here. You might read familiar passages from her previous books here of her personal story, but that's also probably why you picked up the book too. The solution of the gospel tends to feel a bit longer in laying out the answer, but one has to see that the audience isn't just for Christians, but for non-Christians or Christians needing help with providing the world a full answer from a biblical perspective. This was very well done and very well balanced. Butterfield provides enough current event stories to inform someone who hasn't paid attention in the last seven years what the issue is. She gives enough personal anecdotes to provide actual situations that any of us may encounter. She also gives a full biblical perspective rooted in the scriptures of how Christians should respond and a worldview of why we shouldn't be surprised that this is happening. A good book to mark up and to give to others. Final grade, A. The Hand of God by Yuval Kordov. Overview. The world ended the first time from AI, government, and nuclear weapons. Esther was there to see it happen and survived. Then God ended the world again. Fast forward to a world where only a few assembled factions of humanity remain. The totalitarian government sends out their best to confront Esther's order and take her technology away from her for their own purposes. Review. This book started out so strong. A post-apocalyptic setting with a sympathetic character who is struggling to survive and making tough decisions that turn out bad because of the dire straits she finds herself in. The ending of the first act really gave me a lot of hope for the rest of the book. Unfortunately, I ended up not liking anything past that, and what with the plot of an apocalypse caused by man and second by God, I had high hopes. From there, the other two acts are slogged down and pacing for too many changes in character. The story isn't straightforward because of this. I'm not a lazy reader and have enjoyed hidden details to enjoy a bigger plot reveal, uh, like Shadow of the Torturer by Gene Wolfe, but I didn't follow this well at all. The story slogs through, and the switching from inner character details to exterior plot to exposition makes it even more muddled. Action set pieces were very confusing, 
as I was, sh- I wasn't sure who the military group was actually fighting to get into some hidden base in the outer areas. No one has ever come back from the other the- theocracy faction has some interesting reveals, but when switching from them and coming back, their story ha- has skipped and further uh, reveals from the first don't really follow. The time from arc one to arc two, uh, where the majority of the story occurs, just doesn't inform me of how the world has gotten this way and for what reason. The ending with a cliffhanger did not solidify even a good wrap-up, where all the, the, the ties are pulled together, even of any of the developed points in this book. Sadly, with a great plot description and a strong start to the book, the rest of the book fell flat. With unclear prose and a winding plot of confusion, I didn't enjoy this, and I won't be continuing with the next one. Final grade, D-. A Knight's Quest for the Holy Grail by C.S. Johnson. Overview. Lance is a knight in shining armor and has fetched his beloved Princess Alexandra. The only thing that could warm her heart, a cup of coffee. Review. My traditional, twice so far, end-of-the-year novella read read by the wonderful C.S. Johnson happens now. The only thing bad about reading her novellas is usually I want them longer, but she has other great works to satisfy that need. The beginning is a nice little opening that you do see what's coming down the road with a simple twist that gives us our character knight. It's a nice little romantic jaunt that keeps just enough of the ye old knight symbolism without it becoming schmaltzy. In a bad way. Always a pleasure, especially for the romantics in all of us men who want to be knights as well. Final grade, E+. Far Away and Forever by Nancy Joy Wilkie. Overview. A collection of short stories that focuses on a spiritual and metaphysical nature of mankind in a science fiction setting. AI, the soul, first contact, the source of wish fulfillment, and the second coming of Christ are covered. Review. This collection of five short stories mixes sci-fi elements with religious or human identity elements. Wilkie writing is clear and puts the sci-fi more in the background to highlight the characters. Like most short story collections, there are favorites. There are not any that are terrible, and that usually means that this collection will be a good pickup for many readers who end up liking different stories for different reasons. The first story, Once Upon a Helix, involves a first contact scenario through SETI. Unlocking the message comes from a chance encounter between the scientists and a bioscientist, who just so happened to provide the key. One tends to forgive this chance encounter as a kismetic shortcut for the short story. The science used seems to make sense, and that's good enough for my science fiction. This was one of my favorites, and as the figuring out of the puzzle by the two experts in their field was a struggle for the prize of listening in on the first message from space. The second story, The Goldfire Project, which involves the discussion of the afterlife, the soul, and consciousness, which, when it comes into humans and going into the computer world, and AI wanting to come out of the computer world in order to die and go to heaven. Seems like a good story, right? This could have easily been my favorite story if the AI part of the story was a bit more flushed out or the conversation between the main character and the AI occurred a bit longer. There is a lot to like here, and this could easily have been a longer novella that could really explore a lot more. The third story is Half the Sky. A girl raised in a covenant uh, orphanage with another guy friend finds out that her mother and father are still alive on the post-Earth planet they are living on with her. She seeks out the truth on why she was put up for adoption, and why someone would want to stop her from finding out the truth of it. This had good characters, but it really missed the big picture overall. The main character and her friend have good dialogue, and I end up really liking them. However, Wilkie attempts to zoom out from the main character's plot and discuss humanity's role to explore the stars, and this rings a little hollow. A missed opportunity, but not too bad. 
The fourth story is The Wishbringer. A reporter travels through a portal to discover God exists, and he uses a, f- a farmer to cultivate wishes, which are different than prayers that humanity is granted if unknown reasons allow for them to be picked. This almost feels like a low-key Twilight Zone episode with the end that occurs, which is probably the best part of the story. The rest is fine, but the reporter interview setting makes it too exposition-heavy into the system of wishes. It almost seems like the story was padded either from an idea and the system needed a plot or a plot that needed a system. The final story is last Sunday of summer and involves a nun in training whose nun teacher is murdered. It's found that the trainee is tasked with transporting a book from her planet to another one without being caught by a shadowy figures of Rome and the Pope who want to stop her as the book is the second coming of Jesus that has already happened on earth. And now a third coming is being prepared for This is really my least favorite one and the closest one I came to really not liking at all. The story is pretty bland for no real big revelations or action pieces. Find old dude in the woods, get MacGuffin, run away, get on ship, sleep, wake up, end. Sadly, a disappointing ending to a pretty decent collection. Overall, though, I enjoyed reading this book, and it's nice to see that the indie market includes religious aspects to the sci-fi genre. It seems like Asimov and Clark wrote out religion in the future of sci-fi literature and did so without realizing how much of an impact religion has had on human history, especially considering that Jesus Christ is creator of Lord and Lord of all. As for the book, pick it up if the stories sound interesting. Final grade, B. The Mark of a Christian by Francis A. Schaeffer. Overview. What does it mean to be a Christian, and can one show it to those around us without uttering a word? What does it look like to be a Christian? What does God expect us to say and do and be? Review. Yeah, again, every time I read anything by Schaefer, this was written in 1970, the more I proclaim him to be a prophet in both declaring God's word and being an onlooker on what the future, our present, needs. It's always a loving kick in the pants, too, and that's why I read Theology. Schaefer takes the words of Jesus in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another, and runs with it. Schaefer systematizes all the different details to see here. He looks at being accused by the world by not being loving in a proper way, uh, that we are called by God to be loving, by telling what is true on the basis of God's revelation. Then he covers when the world calls us non-loving because we are unloving. Unloving towards others, especially unloving towards other believers. Schaefer's very striking point here, he terms the final apologetic, warns Christians that being truly loving and having the world see it undermines Christ's work so much it would be valid to have the unbelieving world declare God did not send Jesus into the world as an atonement. Pretty, pretty heavy stuff. Schaefer is not being harsh. He's being challenging. And when he is challenging, he also shows the other, other avenues of this passage. The be- believer will fail, and, will, and with failure, we are able to be forgiven, and then go and ask for forgiveness. That, too, is showing love for others and other believers. Then, believers are called to be forgiving of others, especially those seeking forgiveness. He provides a very challenging story of post-World War II Germany, of believers on both sides of the line, and a truly be- beautiful story about the redemption of Christ that... Christ provides the world after a monstrosity of hatred and death experienced there. There are so many points that it would be just be the book here of the in the review. So Christian, go pick this up and be challenged, especially with how you respond to others on places like Twitter, and especially how you are called to love other believers. 
I love you. Final grade, A+. Plus. A meeting with Medusa by Arthur C. Clarke. Overview. Captain Howard Falcon, after suffering a crash on of his ship on Earth, is set to lead an expedition to Jupiter where, oh wow, there are really big jellyfish and manta ray aliens. Review. Clark does seem to have a thing for Jupiter, eh? This 1971 short novella puts us into a first planet exploration, the previously mentioned gas giant, and a first contact scenario with giant creatures unknown to humanity at the time. But before we get there, we are introduced to our main ca- character, Captain Howard Falcon, but not the F-Zero racer. The prelude to the mission is a strange encounter where a dirigible crashes along the Grand Canyon and monkey crew members go flying. It's a weird introduction, and it sets up the ending, which I believe was meant to be a twist-like ending, but it seems like an obvious state we can find Captain Falcon in. Maybe in 1971, this was a more surprising revelation than today. Captain Falcon doesn't seem to have much setback from his crash, minus a long physical recovery. He's tasked to lead the expedition to Jupiter and makes it easily enough. The encounter with marine-like life in Jupiter's atmosphere is a big focus, and it's nice to see a first contact with, well, actual alien life that aren't just bipedal humanoids with advanced tech. This is mostly the story with a quick revelation on Captain Falcon and his musings of what further exploration by humanity among the planets would be like with the new life discovery being the catalyst for excitement to go and seek out new life. Writing at the end of the Apollo moon mission, apathy toward taking hold in America, and the rest of the world, this type of inspirational story makes sense. Other than that, it's just a nice little space story. Nothing too positive or negative about the characters or plot. The big aliens being the groundbreaking item that would be built upon by others and continued by current-day sci-fi writers of this exact story. A nice sci-fi read. Final grade, B minus. Art in the Bible by Francis A. Schaefer. Overview. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, including our art. Schaefer makes the scriptural case for this, and then the Christian cultural one. Review. If you're used to only reading Schaefer for his apologetics, you are missing out on one of his biggest contributions to Christendom. The encouragement for Christians to make Jesus Christ Lord of all. And that also includes in the culture and then the arts. During Schaefer's day, he was the one answering any question thrown at Christianity. He was going to the youth and the college students, and they were coming to him. He was an adopter of the indie documentaries like How Should We Then Live? He would have fit right at home in an online video space. And this book is a prime example of Schaefer's writing succinctly and proficiently. After stating his premise, the Christians are to be great artists for the glory of God. Schaefer splits the book into two parts to make his case. The first part is a look back into the scriptures to show all the ways art has played a part in the carrying out of God's plan of salvation. It's easy to say that he stays here a bit too long, but not to draw on the examples he gives would do a disservice to the purpose of the whole book and premise. Schaefer points to God being a creator and us being his image bearers. We can engage in non-idol making art. Art that is not just paintings, but architecture, jewelry, painting, etc. are given. A stellar point of how even the Song of Solomon points Christians to being good romantics and engaging in good sex should not be undersold. All points are reflections back to the main source of our creator. The second part of the book is what most of us are used to today, the call to action. Schaefer has grounded his call in scripture, and so the motivation in how should we now live becomes one of inspiration and details. Schaefer doesn't only talk about being good artists, but also being good intakers of art. Things like technical abilities should be displayed, and those same abilities should be appreciated for it. Of course, Schaefer has to talk about worldview being reflected in the art. Amazing points all around for those 
who reads Schaefer for his presuppositional apologetics. Other points worth highlighting is that not all good Christian art has to be religious art. The art can still be Christian art without putting a baby Jesus in it or footprints in the sand. An interesting cultural aspect that Schaefer discusses is of how one's culture and society could be seen in the art and should be seen in the art. The music or the sculpture from Japan is going to be recognized as such because the style and technical aspect that make the music or sculpture from the UK different. Schaefer makes some interesting points that are being discussed and debated today. One aspect that I would have liked to have read more on was Schaefer's take on objective beauty. Beauty is discussed here, but I feel like Schaefer would have been able to express a positive case for objective beauty in about six pages, an inflation rate of 120 pages by today's authors. This is a book to pick up and discuss with others. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, even the arts. Christians should have no excuses for making bad art. Final grade, A-. Personal finances for teens simplified. Seven easy-to-learn strategies for conquering debt, understanding the value of money, and achieving financial independence by Jay Links. Overview. Use the lessons in this book to help teach your teens what they really need to succeed financially in their life. Review. First of all, this is a book about good general advice for everyone. The author tends to just tell the parents they need to tell their teens the things in the book. So this isn't really a for teens, but a for parents or more so in general. So there's nothing here that's wrong, and it's fairly straightforward advice. Save money, don't get in debt, learn what stock and credit is, budget. So on one hand, I've got nothing to complain about with the material. Uh, But on the other hand, this really isn't a book to hand to kids or anything in the material that's newly slanted for the intended audience. While the contents would make for a good blog series, it's nice to have it all in one book format. If you're a parent that has general good habits of finances, there isn't anything here you won't already know and do. But if you need the help, pick up the book. Final grade, C+. Periaps of Christmas, edited by the great Katie Room. Overview. Five short stories with Christmas themes from a selection of indie pubs who write to tell good stories and not just what big publishing corporations have approved. The great Katie Room from periapsispress.com had edited a wide swath of talent for this collection of stories. Review. This short story anthology is from the fantastic power couple from Periaps Express, and I'm a big fan of their mission and reviews. I know if a book is listed on their site, I don't need to read the review. Like this book, there are some that I like and others I like more. This book has the theme of Christmas, but had the deeper theme is indie authors who believe in a transcendent nature that the spirit of Christmas resides. Here are my reviews of each story. Workshop Rebellion by T.J. Marquise. A great way to kick off the anthology. The current day Santa comes from a long line who hold back the darkness and allows the light to flourish. This story does a good job in world building and what it needs to have you understand enough of the mythology. The use of theme and totems make Santa recognizable, but also that this Kris Kringle lifts at the gym. Good atmosphere and action. Grandpa Got Run Over by a Bane Deer by Kaylena Radcliffe. A very fun story, one that is slightly similar to Marquis in that it has developed a mythos you are discovering with the main character. With short stories, it must be hard just how much to develop your world to the audience, but it's clear Radcliffe has one set for the characters. An ancestor of Jack Frost, along with a few other Christmas time characters, stand at the precipice of her world and another world and stands against the darkness. I would have liked a little more to understand the world and slightly less silly title, but this mythos is exactly what I want in this type of collection.
Julie Nees Pays a Visit, a Reverse Black Maria Story by Jeff Stoner. A fun story that is in a sci-fi fantasy world that is something like John Carter of Mars. There's a nice touch with the world of Valhalla being frozen over, but there's a bit more hope than what Ragnarok would call for. There's a lot of story that sets the scene for what's the main turn of the story in the last couple of pages. I'm not sure I understood the need for that much buildup, but those last couple of pages are nice to see the, the myth of Christmas being carried to a new world. The Fairy Tree by William Jeffrey Rankin. The world for this story is a joy. To say the story is simple is to not give it enough credit. I enjoy a good father-son story because it's done well so little, if at all. This story is a grandfather and his grandson that has a mystery of Narnia-esque feel and a family lineage being passed down that hints at being stretched back for a long time. There is just a hint of a fuller story and a fight against evil. I will say that the run through a creature was a bit of an odd choice where I would slightly confuse and had to read that section again. A running from and to safety would have been a bit clear. I would probably pick up a fuller book with the magic hinted here. Christmas Spirits by Alexander Helena. I would call this the only true sci-fi story in the lot. Technically not the only one. It's also the one that's less Christmassy set in a space western setting. The goal is getting a gift from a bounty hunter like grandma. Good action and some funny dialogue with a good amount of world building in a short amount of time. The ending is one of irony and it's slightly off and peters out. If the story had some other examples of irony, this would have struck home more. If you're looking for fantasy sci-fi stories by talented authors who enjoy writing good stories, aren't pushing a message of hating you, the reader, and believe in the mythology of Christmas to create new worlds of enjoyment, this is the one to pick up. Final grade, A. Periapsis Christmas 2 by Katie Room. Overview. The great Katie Room of periapsispress.com returns to her editing duties to provide a collection of Christmas short stories from indie pub authors excited to tell you good stories without checking the boxes of approved representation characters involving stories from authors who hate you. A novel idea. Review. Another fabulous anthology collection by the amazing rooms of Periapsis Press. Believers in good stories, wanting readers to enjoy what they're reading, and promoting the art found in authors of indie publishing scene, you can trust that any book listed on the site is going to be a worthy of being read, just like this anthology collection. Fear Not by Frederick Giro Heinbach, a Twilight Zone-esque story about being careful what you pray for. It was an okay story, but save the ending, there isn't much to, gra to grab onto. Protector's Gift by Blake Carpenter. This was absolutely amazing story. A Western-like fantasy world with a protector character acting as a territory sheriff and the world comes crashing down around him. The only thing to help him is his stalwart conviction to help others and a little gift from someone who bears a strong resemblance to a magical character who provides gifts for good people in the world. There is not one ounce of story wasted here. The world is built up so I understood exactly what I needed to know about the world. The action was enthralling. The characters are people who I want to root for and root against. I immediately went out and bought one of the author's books that seemed similar to the story. This whole anthology would have been worth it for this story alone. But there are other good ones as well. The Shelter Most High by William Jeffrey Rankin. I'm not exactly sure what the story was about. Aliens or cryptids, I believe it took place around Christmas, but that's the only connection I can see here. 
I really must have missed something. I did enjoy Rankin's story from previous anthology, though. Ember Knight, A Shade of Black Story by Jonathan Schroeger. This story is helped by being part of a story that the author has already established. This helps ground the character in the story in a wider world and story. The author provides enough background to give us the character, and the setting is almost fantasy post-apocalyptic Earth. I'm interested in more of the stories because it does seem like Christianity is known in this world. Regardless, the action takes the front and center role, and the tireless hero facing the horde of evil thing is paced well. Action scenes are hard to get right in a story, and is done very well here. The whole story endeared the main character to me, and I'm probably going to pick up the first book in the series. Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence by Kylina. Well, well, well. Bringing back the amazing story from the last anthology and continuing the story while building out the whole world more in a way that I wanted to happen, huh? All right, touche, author. Frost is back, and now that he's settled into his role, the stakes have expanded. There is some mystery here, but the story adds to the great setting and makes it even better, with a better title this time around. I picked up one of the author's series. What would it be like if Stephen King didn't hate half the country? It'd be something like this book. Kids versus evil is a big thing these days, but it's not a new trope for a good reason. You come into the story at almost the very end, and you know there is a good amount of story you missed out on that would have been fun read. The main characters running into the military gets a little muddled, and I have a few issues for me here. Getting past that gets you to the finish line of the story and ends the anthology well. Another knockout anthology with a couple of amazing stories. Final grade, eight. If you made it this far, uh, thank you for listening to me talk about all the books that I read in all 52. That was the goal for this year. Uh, to mix in things like theology and sci-fi and uh, other things that people uh, have asked me to review. Um, Hopefully going forward to this new year, uh, you've set a goal. And even if you don't achieve it, you'll still pick up books off your shelf and enjoy uh, reading stories from people uh, that are trying to communicate uh, to you the the human condition and uh, um, can communicate to you information that we are privileged to have things like books in our lives to, uh, to, to the extent that we do. Uh, and so it's uh, it's quite amazing to to think back from the time of the reformers and and being able to hold in my hand uh, things that they would have probably uh, far expanded the entire world with at this point in time if they had access to what we did. So uh, join us uh, next time for uh, picking up into our book that we're in the middle of. And uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh, talk about some of the books that I read for this year. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.